0: Um, if you have been tracking with us in this teaching series that we're going through uh, in, the, in the Gospel of Matthew, New Testament, I just want to ask you, what have you learned about Jesus so far? Have you been surprised by anything that you've learned? We have met people who have been surprised by Jesus so far. Joseph and Mary were very surprised by Jesus. Uh, Those he invited to be his disciples were surprised by him. Have you been disappointed by anything you've read, heard, encountered? We have met people who were disappointed. We got to the end of chapter 4. There were crowds that Jesus was ministering to and healing. And then he left. And there were still people who had not been healed yet. And he went up to the mountain to give the Sermon on the Mount, which is amazing. But those people probably felt disappointed that they were left there. Have you been angry with anything that you've heard? Or been angry with Jesus, something that you've learned? The Pharisees, in rather short fashion, have gotten quite angry with Jesus. He rebuked Satan for and the one-on-one confrontation they had in the desert in chapter 4. Surely that wasn't Satan's favorite day. And I would imagine that those listening to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5 through 7, what we've just gone through, those who are still struggling with hatred and sexual sin and disdain for their spouses and lying and stinginess and anxiety and worry of which we find ourselves in good company, I bet some of them were angry when they heard Jesus' solutions to each of these shipwrecking sins. Maybe you've been awestruck by Jesus. We've seen that response too. Dominic last week brought us to the end of chapter seven and the end of the Sermon on the Mount. If you recall, it ends this way. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority, not as their teachers of the law. But I think this is a litmus test. This is one of the ways to know if you've actually heard what Jesus says, not just in the Sermon on the Mount, but in the Bible, is that you have some kind of response that's either amaze or disgust. And the amazement here that it says is not just like bravo, you know, insert golf clap. This is a word that means like shocked, thunderstruck, and it's in the grammatical is this it's this imperfect tense means it's ongoing. Like, it happened to them, and it keeps happening, and they, the more they think about it, the more they're amazed, and the more that they're shocked and, and awed by Jesus and what he's teaching. It's unlike anything they've ever heard before. This is the prevailing way that people respond to Jesus when they hear him, when they read the Sermon on the Mount, when they encounter his life and his teaching, and as we get to the end of it, we should ask ourselves, have I been astounded, or offended, or amazed, or, do I say like... I know it. Yeah, I've heard that before. It's good stuff. You know, it's really good. I'm glad we're we're teaching that at church. Man, you know, what's the response like? The hits just keep coming as we move forward today. In this longer section that we're going to look at, we're not going to read it all in one chunk, but we're going to kind of weave our way through it because we're going to see Jesus on the offensive taking on religious barriers and ethnic barriers and gender barriers and satanic opposition. So let's read the first Portion together. You've got it printed uh, uh, two pages on, on your notes there. It's on the screen as well. So starting Matthew 8 verse 1. When Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I'm willing, he said, be clean. Immediately he was cleansed of his leprosy. Then Jesus said to him, See that you don't tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. Jesus said to him, Shall I come heal him? The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, go, let it be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that moment. When Jesus came into Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her and she got up and began to wait on him. When evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him, and he drove out the spirits with word and healed all the sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and bore our diseases. So Here's Jesus. He's come down from the mountainside above the, the seaside town of Capernaum. He's been up on a hill teaching, giving his famous Sermon on the Mount, and large numbers of people are following him, Around now, They're following around the countryside of Galilee in the northern part of Israel. Chapters 5 through 7, they showed us the Messiah in word as he's teaching. And here, chapters 8 and 9, we see the Messiah at work. And there's three general types of of miracles that we see Jesus performing. He's healing people. He's performing exorcisms. And there are natural miracles. And we see each of those here as we get through chapter 8. You'll see them all. He also raises people from the dead. That's a category all of its own, but that doesn't show up here in this part. These miracles that what we're reading about Jesus doing here in chapters 8 and 9, they are a demonstration of the kingdom of God, that the kingdom of heaven has truly arrived. And as Jesus gets to work, the story starts abruptly, just gets right into it. It says a man with leprosy came and knelt before him. And you may know about leprosy. It's actually still around. It's known as Hansen's disease. Uh, You can get it from eating armadillos. I encourage you not to eat armadillos, Uh, although you can find them a lot in places like Texas and Louisiana. But it was a horror of an illness, wasting away human limbs and extremities like noses, ears, leading to what was the, the social, physical, spiritual isolation of these people. And unfortunately, a whole variety of skin diseases would get lumped under this title leprosy. So even things like dermatosis and psoriasis and lupus and ringworms could lead someone to to get like a living death sentence to be put out of the community. This leper must have heard about Jesus' healing ministry because he kneels before him and says right away, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And you see the amazing humility in this request here. The leper does not presume to tell Jesus what to do, but he appeals to him as the one who bears and wields God's healing power. I won't presume to boss you around, Jesus, but I know you're the one with the power. The source of the healing for the leper is in Jesus, who only has to will it to cure him, but he does more than that. He touches him amazingly. To touch someone with that kind of a skin disease not only put you at risk of contagion yourself, but it also made you spiritually unclean. You now had to go through ritual ceremonies to be able to be clean, and come back into the uh, assembly to worship with God's people. And this is why Jesus tells him after he heals him to go to the priest so that he can be set right in the community, recognized, yes, well, yeah, you've been made clean, come back into fellowship with the people. But Jesus doesn't hesitate to touch him. How long had it been since that man had had any sort of loving, affectionate contact with another human? And Jesus heals him with the touch. And he sends him to the priest to be certified clean. But Jesus doesn't go to the priest. He should have. That is, if he'd come into contact with something unclean, he should have gone to the priest, to the temple, to be made clean again. Unless there's something else that's going on here. You see, Jesus is the source of purity and cleanness. Jesus doesn't need to go be made clean because he is the source of true purity and cleansing. Jesus, he's establishing his identity. He's drawing a line in the sand. He's saying, do you see who I am? By healing and cleansing this leper, he is crossing, he's pushing, he's breaking these purity boundaries. He is the one who is ultimately clean and brings true cleansing. There's no going to the temple for him. He is the temple. In verses 5 to 13, we see Jesus heal again. He heals the Roman centurion's servant, and it's astounding. He returns again to Capernaum, the base of his ministry, and he meets a centurion, a Roman military officer. And archaeological excavations have shown that the Romans had a military garrison just east of the town of Capernaum. And and, and here, too, this centurion approaches Jesus directly with a request, not for him, but for his servant. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home, paralyzed, suffering terribly. Like the leper, he too calls Jesus Lord. And he's showing this remarkable sensitivity to Jewish traditions by saying that he was unworthy to have a Jewish teacher visit the home of a Gentile. He says, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof for for a Gentile, for a non-Jew to go into the home of a Jew or vice versa would make the Jewish person ritually unclean. Here's the cleanness issue again. But I guess he doesn't fully know who he's talking to yet, does he? But This doesn't stop the centurion. He knows enough to know that Jesus' personal superiority as the one who can heal is all the power that he needs. He says, but just say the word, my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. The Roman military had incredible authority over the lives of the men in their ranks. But this Roman recognizes an even greater authority in Jesus whose word alone, like God's word, can heal. And in response to this, Jesus says something amazing, something offensive. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following him, Truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. (laughs) What the centurion sees that those in Israel, the Jews in their homeland, cannot see yet is that Jesus is the authority over all authorities. He's the hoped-for deliverer. And Jesus' prays for this guy is really amazing because he singles out a Gentile, an outsider, a non-Jew for the kind of faith that the Jews should follow. And he puts his own people on blast for their lack of faith and understanding. You have this promise to the Gentiles and this judgment against Israel. It's dangerous territory, Jesus. Don't you remember, Jesus? This is just the sort of thing that's gotten scores of prophets killed right where you're standing. Watch out. Verse 11, I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. He's saying the kingdom of heaven is available now and into eternity to Gentiles, to non-Jews, to ethnic and cultural outsiders And by healing the centurion's servant, Jesus is breaking through and crossing these ethnic boundaries. He says, go, let it be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that moment. And in doing this, he's dramatically foreshadowing the exclusion of some who think that they have an assured place at the heavenly feast. He's saying to the Jews, just because you're a cultural insider, just because you're an ethnic Jew, doesn't mean you're on the inside with me. Now, those who come in, come in with faith like this centurion. And that faith has nothing to do with ethnic or cultural background. But The subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into darkness. They'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then in verses 14 to 15, we see a third healing here. We're taken into the homes of one of the village, uh, in, in the village of Capernaum, into the home of the mother-in-law of Peter, the disciple, it seems like he probably had a pretty good relationship with his mother-in-law if he's bringing this big group of friends and this crowd of stragglers into the home, probably on short notice. Here's a little side note that I think is important to see about Peter and his family. In, in, back in chapter 4, when Jesus calls Peter to follow him, it says that Peter and his brother Andrew, it says at once they left their nets and followed. They, they left their livelihood as fishermen to follow Jesus. Peter's call to become a fisher of men meant to follow Jesus' will for his whole life. But it didn't mean to compromise on his responsibility to his family or to give up all material possessions because here he's in his mother-in-law's home probably taking care of her and they have a a home. Interestingly, archaeologists believe they know exactly where this house is. They've excavated it here in the ancient ruins of Capernaum. But more interesting than all those little details is the fact that Jesus' personal presence commands authority over this disease ravaged world and he heals the woman with just a touch and it's instantaneous he touched her hand and the fever left her she got up and began to wait on him because that's what mother-in-laws do when you bring a crowd of unexpected guests into their home they keep cleaning up after you in fact they were probably the ones to blame for her getting sick she probably overextended herself right you mothers-in-law that's how it goes But her response is amazing. I think it's this picture of instantaneous gratitude, a model for discipleship. When you experience healing or God's provision in your life or his help or his blessing or his protection, is your response instantaneous gratitude? Or is it something else? It's like, yeah, that's good, but what about this thing over here, Jesus? I mean, I kind of asked for a little more than that, didn't I? (laughs) This is more than just a sweet family story, though, here. Like, Peter's my main man. I'm just throwing a little love to his mother-in-law, helping him out. No, Jesus is making a point about his identity with each of these things because women were another group of often marginalized people in some circles of Judaism. And by healing Peter's mother-in-law, Jesus is saying, yes, here too, Jesus is crossing, pushing these barriers, breaking these barriers, even gender, to say God's grace does not show favoritism of the pure over the impure, of the ethnic insider over the outsider, of man over woman. It's for all. And what happens after this is kind of surprising. It's like something big's happened. Like, like Bono and U2 came to town, like they did last year, right? The end of the Joshua Tree tour, and everybody's like, we want more. You can't stop yet. Joshua Tree again, and they're just, they're rushing the stage, and they, they want to see them, and, and they disappear out the back. Jesus disappears. He sees the crowd and he goes away. To be more specific, he departs to be with his disciples. Let's pick up at verse 18. When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. Then a teacher of the law came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. What happens here is something that consistently happens in Matthew. The crowd is the object of Jesus' ministry. They're the ones he's proclaiming the gospel to, the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. And he's healing them and he's inviting them Into his kingdom family to become his disciples, but not all respond. And only those who come out of the crowd and trust him and follow him are his disciples. And it's to his disciples that Jesus is giving himself through his spirit, through his words, and he's giving these disciples this personalized, specialized teaching so they can know how to live in the kingdom. That's what's happening in the Sermon on the Mount, so they can serve others. And verses 18 to 22 capture the account of two people already apparently following Jesus, traveling with him, calling themselves disciples. But somehow they're deficient in their understanding of what discipleship to Jesus really means. Verse 19 tells us that a teacher of the law, a scribe, comes to Jesus, an expert in handling the written documents of the scriptures. This is a highly educated, highly trained person, able to teach, able to interpret, able to regulate the laws of scripture. To become a scribe, he had already served as a disciple of some other master to a different rabbi until he finished his studies and could become a legal expert himself. So he comes to Jesus with all that background, a slew of hidden assumptions and expectations, and he says, teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. But the fact that he's already done an apprenticeship as a disciple to another rabbi means He's most likely looking to attach himself to somebody for the purpose of career advancement. Our people in his position would examine various rabbis, various masters, and they would enlist themselves to the one that they thought was the most popular or had the best chances of taking them for the most equipped ones. And Jesus sees right through it. And on the surface, it seems like his volunteerism is really noble. And Jesus' response seems mysterious. Foxes have dens, birds have nests. But the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Jesus is trying to make a point to this guy that being his disciple is unlike being a disciple to anybody else. And it's it's a stern reply. It's intended to put this guy in check. Rabbis in that time enjoyed a relatively high status in society, but Jesus doesn't have a school that he operates out of, he doesn't have a synagogue. There's no prestigious place of honor he holds among the religious leaders. He couch surfs, (laughs) he stays with friends. Starting with Jesus and then on into the early Christians, their dependence on hospitality of family and friends and other believers makes Airbnb look like an uncoordinated hack job. I mean, it was amazing the hospitality they demonstrated. And what we see in this man, this would-be disciple, are his professional expectations. Jesus, what can you do for me if I attach myself to you? And Jesus is trying to get across the point that that's not how it works. There's not going to be some big establishment that he gets a nice seat at the table in with all these comfortable benefits, right? The path of those who follow him, it doesn't need that to succeed, there will be a few Christians called out to serve the church in positions of leadership, but that's never to be something to be used over and against people. Jesus talks about leadership you see in the world. He says, it's not supposed to be that way with you. You serve. You want to be the first, you get to the bottom. Another disciple comes forward. This sort of thing happened a lot. People would come, and, and they would ask to join his movement. And they come naturally, understandably, with their expectations of what Jesus is like. And you know they got their experiences in the back of their mind of what this is going to be like. That's how it happens for us too, right? You come to Jesus and you've got ideas of what this is going to be like and what, it, what it's going to mean for you. And, and then we go on to learn how things really are and how he really is. And it's, it's better than we ever imagined. And the further we get into the Gospel of Matthew, the clearer the picture becomes of what it means to be a disciple, a follower. And so here's something important to understand. Jesus will have no disciples except under his own conditions. So he tests this disciple's commitment. Lord, first let me go bury my father. And in most cultures, most religions, burying the dead surpasses like any other cultural obligations or responsibilities or religious obligations. When there's a funeral, you cut work to go, don't you? And nobody's like, oh my gosh, what a lazy bum. He's going to a funeral again. Nobody says that. So when somebody in your family dies, you put everything on hold for days, for weeks, sometimes for months. We have this explicit command in the Ten Commandments to honor your father and your mother, which surely caring for them in death and burial is one of the most important parts of honoring them. And Jesus' response is shocking. Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Now, don't get me wrong. He later rebukes the Pharisees and the teachers of the law for not rightly honoring their parents. So he's not promoting that his disciples just throw all this to the wind. What it seems that Jesus is doing is he's taking something so important, something so sacred, a place where this metaphor will bite into us. And he's saying that the call to follow him is above all other allegiances. Anything that gets in the way of our wholehearted discipleship commitment to him must be set aside. Anything. Jesus challenges, this would-be disciples' cultural expectations. Right? I'm bringing my culture to bear on what it means to do this. And no, no, Jesus gets to write the script. And this calls for us, and specifically this example, it calls for some wise thinking, doesn't it? Followers of Jesus must be guided by God's commands to honor our parents. But the supremacy of Jesus as our master supersedes everything. And for the most part, we are usually honoring Jesus when we bless and honor our parents. But there may be times we have to choose. Maybe you've experienced that in your life when you had to choose. With anything in our life, we may be forced to choose. And disciples of Jesus are learning to always choose him. In the last part of chapter 8, in the beginning of chapter 9, Jesus ups the ante more. He's taking on Satan. Satan. The devil in his own turf. The places where he feels like he has dominion. And in the first skirmish in the desert that we looked at back in chapter 4, Jesus was victorious here. Starting verse 23 on into chapter 9, Jesus continues the invasion of territory Satan has captured. Three strongholds in particular. Here's the first, verse 23. He got into the boat and his disciples followed him. Suddenly a furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. I mean, we could do a whole sermon on that. Like, he was sleeping? <laughs> That's amazing to me. The disciples went and they woke him, saying, Lord, save us, we're going to drown. He replied, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? Then he got up and rebuked the wind and winds and the waves, and it was completely calm. The men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. Don't forget that many of these disciples of Jesus were professional fishermen who had crossed this very lake, the Sea of Galilee, many, many times. But there's a storm here that causes even the most stalwart fishermen to tremble with fear. This freshwater lake is surrounded on the east and the west by mountains rising up to 2,600 feet above the level of the lake, which means that when the storms come in, the wind just rushes down the cliffs and these violent downdrafts whip the surface up into storms that are dangerous. And this here is a storm powerful enough to make the disciples cry out, Lord, save us, we're gonna drown. And so you see, they had enough faith to believe that under life and death circumstances, like, this is it, this is a Hail Mary pass to God that they think Jesus has enough power when they can't control their faith, but somehow their appeal to him and their faith, it's not quite enough because Jesus gets on them. You have little faith. Why are you so afraid, he says. The disciples have faith, but it's not functioning properly. and What they need is a clearer picture of who Jesus really is so that they can act on that. True faith, the kind of faith Jesus wants us to have enables us to trust in God's care even when the circumstances don't look promising. And so he shows them a clearer picture of who he really is. He got up and rebuked the winds and the waves and it was completely calm. Jesus is able to command the forces of nature You see it in the Old Testament. God rebuking the sea as a demonstration of his sovereign power over all nature. And Jesus is like, yes, that's me. And by calming the storm, Jesus shows that he has authority over nature. Now they're beginning to get a fuller picture of who Jesus is. They were amazed. There's that word again. And they asked, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. They are shocked. They are awed. Just like the crowds at the end of the Sermon on the Mount were shocked and awed. So let me just ask you a little diagnostic question. Are you having trouble trusting Jesus? Are you having trouble having faith in him? Maybe you need to get a fuller picture of who he is and what he's capable of so that you'll actually be trusting him as he is and not some two-dimensional caricature that either you've drawn up in your mind or that your culture gives you. Next, Jesus takes on Satan's minions head on. Verse 28, when he arrived at the other side in the region of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men were coming from the tombs. They met him. They were so violent, no one could pass that way. What do you want with us, son of God? They shouted. Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? Some distance from them, a large herd of pigs was feeding. The demons begged Jesus, if you drive us out, send us into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, go. So they came out and went into the pigs and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and died in the water. Those tending the pigs ran off, went into the town and reported all this, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. Then the whole town went out to meet Jesus and when they saw him, they pleaded with him to leave their region. Okay, remember this little vignette right here comes immediately after the disciples' question, what kind of man is this? And this, in part, is answering that. Jesus has traveled across the lake to a Gentile area, non-Jews here, which explains why pigs are being raised. They would have been an unclean animal to the Jews. And Jesus and his party are accosted, confronted by two demon-possessed men, so violent as nobody could pass them without being attacked. And the demons immediately recognize Jesus' identity as Son of God, which Satan did as well back in chapter 4. And the disciples will come to know Jesus this way too, but not yet, not until chapter 14. Right now, the demons see Jesus more clearly than his disciples do. They recognize another stronghold of Satan is being invaded. By healing these demon-possessed men, Jesus shows he has authority over the spirit world. What do you want with us, son of God, they shouted. Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? They know Satan's days are numbered. This is what the scripture says. In what seems like a weird request, they asked to be sent into a herd of pigs, which would not have made the Jews unhappy. Demons and pigs were of the same order for all that they cared. But these pigs were being raised for market. But they were important to someone. They were valuable to someone. Nearly 2,000 of them, Mark's gospel tells us. The destruction of these pigs makes the Gentile neighbors angry enough to ask Jesus to get out because they don't yet know who he is. There's two things I think are important to note here. Satan and his demons have always sought to cause injury and pain to God's creatures, all of God's creatures in creation. And they do so whenever they can. And they always seek to stimulate opposition to Jesus, which is exactly what happens here. And the Gentile townspeople, who are furious, it's understandable. It also goes to show that they don't understand who Jesus is. Just who is in their presence. People apart from God always choose pigs over Jesus. They just don't know what's here. But Jesus is far more important than pigs, than jobs, than economic security, than the funerals of parents, than comfortable homes to lay your head. Finally, Jesus flexes his muscles against Satan on the ultimate frontier. Chapter 9, verse 1. Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over and came to his own town. Some men brought to him a paralyzed man lying on a mat, When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, this fellow is blaspheming. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? I've thought about that a little bit. I don't think either are very easy to say. (laughs) But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, get up. Take your mat and go home. Then the man got up and went home. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe. There it is again. And they praised God who had given such authority to man. It's it's quite possible that they're back in Peter's home in Capernaum. Peter's poor mother-in-law. Here's another crowd. Some men... Surely hearing about the other healings Jesus has performed, they they bring their friend paralyzed, lying on a mat, to Jesus. And, And here, in this healing, Jesus takes it to a whole other level. The entrance of sin into the world brought corruption and death and disease and suffering. And the only way to begin to reverse this disintegration is to heal the root, to correct and heal and transform the problem of sin. One individual person's Sin is not usually the cause of a sickness or a disease or a deformity, but sin, capital S, in the world is the root of all this dysfunction. And once sin is forgiven and redemption has taken place, then all sickness and death will ultimately be abolished. This is the good future that Jesus is taking us and the world to. But until that time comes... Not everyone rejoices when they hear Jesus say that the real problem to be dealt with is sin. Some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, this fellow's blaspheming. The teachers of the law are accusing Jesus of blasphemy, an act where a human dishonors God. And they understand rightly that sin is something only God can forgive. And Jesus essentially says, exactly. And to prove it, son, get up and walk mic drop, Jesus. I mean, it's just amazing. Healing this man by forgiving his sins. Jesus shows he has authority over sin. And the people, I mean, how would you have responded? They're floored. They're amazed. They're awed. This just seems to happen a lot around Jesus. Friends, these Episodes that we've walked through in the ministry of Jesus, they tell us a lot of things, but there is one constant thread, one overarching theme, something we dare not miss, something that Matthew goes to takes pains to show us, and it's that Jesus is the one who has authority. Authority, exousia, this word here, is used by Matthew nine times in his gospel. Five times they show up in what we just read. And the authority Jesus has, as we've seen it play out here, is to establish his kingdom and gather in disciples. All of that great power, that magnificent, awe-inspiring authority, all of it is that Jesus has, he brings to bear in our lives, in your life, in my life, so that we might see him as he really is, have faith, and follow him as his disciple. All that power, that infinite power, so that you can be freed and fully his. So I just want to ask, are you seeing him as he really is? Do you look at Jesus and find yourself bored, unamused, disinterested? I I want to say with humility, you're not seeing straight yet. You've not fully seen him as he is. Because if you had, you'd want to kill him or run hard the other way to get away from him, or you'd want to fall at his feet. I love this quote from Dorothy Sayers. To do them justice, the people who crucified Jesus did not do so because he was a bore. Quite the contrary. He was too dynamic to be safe. It has been left for later generations to muffle up that shattering personality and surround him with an atmosphere of tedium. We have declawed the Lion of Judah and made him a house cat for pale priests and pious old ladies. Now, ladies, don't get offended because I got thrown under the bus there too, the pale priest. All right. If you see him for who he really is, Something else is going to happen. Something else will happen to you. You'll see that he's not only the one with all the real authority, but you'll find that you have what you need to face your fears. What is it that you fear? Is it something in this world, something broken in your body? Do you fear devastation? maybe like the campfire, maybe you knew people who lost their homes or even lost their lives or, or global warm term, warming or the downturn of the markets or global terrorism, maybe it's sickness or pain or death, then you need to know and integrate and trust in the fact that Jesus has authority over nature. Do you fear some dark, unseen thing? Spiritual darkness, the satanic evil of others, a broken mind or spirit, harassment by evil spirits there are many people around the world who live with daily fear of this and this may be true for you as well you need to know that jesus has authority over the spirit world do you fear the sin of others how they might hurt you do you fear that you have done so much wrong that jesus could never forgive you i've gone so far he could never let me back into his family do you you need to do you need to be forgiven you need to forgive others you need to remember that jesus has authority over sin see jesus the one with all the authority the one with all the love and follow him with an allegiance above all others and everything else he will enable you to do this he will equip you to do this by his grace when you trust him let's pray together Lord, I ask that you would help us to see you. We have blind spots. We have biases. We have calloused and hardened and destructive patterns of thinking, and we ask that you would renew us, renew our minds, transform our hearts so that we can see you. Holy Spirit, reveal to us Jesus Christ. I pray for friends who are Discerning, investigating, questioning, seeking. God, would you show them a little bit more of yourself this day and that they might take a step forward to trust you, to take on another question, another fear and put it at your feet. And for those who follow you as disciples, I pray that, that we would see that because you have the authority, we have what we need to face, our fears. We follow the one who has limitless power the one who is good, the one who takes the broken and painful things in our life and uses them for his glory and our good. Nothing is wasted. God, I pray you'd help us to trust you as that kind of disciple. Lord, this is is a hard teaching, but I pray we'd see that this is what we're made for. And that every other thing we try to chase or follow or be a disciple to will let us down. But that you are the one with the authority. You're the one who gives life. You're the one who heals. You're the one who forgives, who redeems. And that you're taking us to an eternity of real healing, full healing, complete healing. Where broken bodies are restored. Where broken minds are restored where the dysfunction of sin is put to death forever. Lord, we celebrate that future and we ask for your help right now to trust you. And we thank you that you're the one with the authority. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.